So I just made this next one up. The 11th commandment is you shall not come to adult Sunday school next Sunday. <laughs> so that you can make an awesome dessert. So in our Exodus series, we've, um, we've been walking, we've slowed down and we're walking through the Ten Commandments. And ba- just for the context, Israel has been redeemed by God and the, the Ten Commandments were telling them how do they live as a holy nation. As a redeemed people whom God has already rescued and made his own, how do they live as a holy nation? So we're, we're taking these one at a time and walking through them. Today we're looking at the, um, we're looking at the Seventh Commandment. Um, you, sh- you shall not commit adultery. We've called the sermon Sacredness of Marriage because in that is where God has designed for sexual expression is in marriage. And in marriage, sex is holy, good, and sacred. Anything outside of that is not. So it's very clear, very simple. Um, was sexual sin a big problem in Moses' day? Or has it only become so extreme in our times? Well, yes, it was a big problem then, and uh, it's been extreme in our times in its own way. At this point, I could list examples of that, but I'm not going to. Uh, If you don't know that, then you're either blessedly uh, naive or you're, um, you're sadly jaded, one or the other. Although we may have more access to sexual sin in our day through smartphones and internet and other ways, uh, and although sexual sin is much more socially acceptable than it was 50 years ago in our culture, it's, um, there's been no age in the history of the church or history period where sex and marriage have not been filled with pain and, and, and danger and marked by sin. So you can go back and look, you can look like 400 years ago, you can look at minutes and elder meetings of churches back in the 1600s and see that the major issues they dealt with were related to sexual problems and marriage. So things have not changed. And in my 24 years of pastoral ministry, by far, those have been the issues that have been, I've dealt with the most in terms of problems in the church. So it makes sense because they're good gifts of God. It's not that those are bad gifts. Sex and marriage are good gifts of God. Uh, But it makes sense because, of course, the devil is going to go after these two great gifts to uh, humanity. We should expect confusion, misunderstanding, and perversion, and pain, not because they're bad, sex and marriage, but because, because they're so good. And because we are fallen and corrupt, we make the biggest mess of, of God's best gifts. So that's why it's so messy and problematic. So we need to ask, uh, what is adultery? Now, before I get to that, I want to share something that this is just kind of frivolous thing. So I th- there's a game show. I think, it's, I think this happened on a game show called Family Feud. So it's where they ask questions and they do a survey and they say, what do you think is the top uh, responses to this question? And so the question was, how many of you have broken, how many ten- of the Ten Commandments have you broken? And so one of the contestants answered seven, and the, the host said, wow, you're that bad? I mean, I can't imagine what you did that you broke seven of the, of the commandments. And it turned out the most popular answer was one. So if you've only broken one of the commandments, you're doing fantastic. So what is adultery? I remember as a kid, I would read the Ten Commandments, and I, and I didn't know what adultery was. 
the best I could, I heard the word adult in there, so the best I could figure as well was it's adults behaving badly. <laughs> and so, yes, uh, that's, that's good. If, that, if that's all the farther you need, need to take it, then maybe that's fine. It's um, having sexual relations with anyone other than the one you're married to. Or, in other words, it's sexual unfaithfulness to the covenant that you made with, to um, your spouse. So, again, God's command is very simple. Don't do that. Don't do it. To better understand why adultery is wrong, we need to understand the sacredness of marriage. So, what is marriage? Well, a famous priest once said, Mowage <laughs> is that blessed arrangement, a dream within a dream. And if that's not helpful to you, then we'll uh, go back to the scriptures <laughs> and look at Genesis 2. So God had formed man out of the dust of the ground and put him in the garden of Eden. And so in verse 18 of Genesis 2, he said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the, the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So after God made Adam the first man, he said it was not good for him to be alone. So he... Um, he said, I'll make a helper fit for him, suitable for him. Animals didn't work for that, so God made not another man, but a woman. So you, you even hear within the name man and woman, uh, the, the woman came from man. Uh, in Hebrew, you're an ish or an isha. So he didn't make another ish, he made an isha. God was both the father of the bride and the one who married them. So God designed for two people fit for one another or complementary to one another, a man and a woman, to be united together in what the Scripture calls a one-flesh union. Malachi 2, chapter 2, says that marriage is a covenant relationship for the purpose of producing godly offspring. So certainly it's not only for that, but it's, it is a very important role or reason for marriage is also uh, producing and raising children. So that's another um, function of marriage. Jesus reaffirmed God's design for marriage that a male and female come together in a one flesh union. We see this in Matthew chapter 19. And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is saying a major reason that God made humans male and female is so that a man would leave his parents and be joined to his wife in one flesh union. And so we see that marriage is between man and woman. Jesus goes on to say that any other sexual activity outside of the marriage is is sexual immorality, or in other words, or specifically adultery. He says that a little bit later. God made man and woman equal in God's image, but different. If you've noticed that, Um, they're not interchangeable. They're, They're different. They're equal, but different. Now, what is the ultimate purpose of marriage? Well, the ultimate purpose of marriage, we see in Ephesians chapter 5, is that it is a picture of Christ saving, cleansing, and being united to, or married to his church. So marriage is a temporary institution. It's a temporary thing uh, that points to and anticipates the eternal relationship between Christ and his people. Every marriage is a trailer for the, for the re- full release of the, of the feature called the, the eternal marriage of Christ and his church. So this is true of every marriage that ever was, ever, ever is, and ever will be, whether, whether they're Christians or not. They're all advertising the relationship of Christ and his church. Every marriage is a picture of that. That's how central uh, God's picture of marriage is to his plan. So since this passage describes roles of husbands and wives, if if we were to read the whole passage from uh, Ephesians chapter 5, we see that it's only between a man and a woman, and there's not the slightest hint anywhere in Scripture that a husband is anything other than a, a man and that a wife is anything other than a woman. Just as Christ and the church are not interchangeable, so man and woman are not interchangeable. So again, what is marriage? Marriage is a God-created, one-flesh covenant union between a man and a woman for intimacy, for companionship and doing good in the world, and for having and raising children, and ultimately to picture the eternal union of Christ and his church. So the Bible opens with a marriage, and the Bible closes with marriage. It's from cover to cover, God's plan. Distorting God's design, therefore, is a distortion of, of, of the gospel itself because that's what, this, what marriage is picturing, Christ redeeming his people and, and uniting them to himself. So if you distort marriage, you distort the gospel. It's, it's a gospel issue. In fact, marriage so pictures the relationship of God to his people that many times in, in Scripture in the Old Testament, God refers to um, uh, Israel's unfaithfulness to him as, as adultery. He says in Jeremiah, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. So marriage is not just a piece of paper. It is sacred to be honored and kept pure. It's not just a nice tradition. That's why it says in Hebrews 13:4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and, and adulterous. So what is so bad about adultery anyway? Why, why is it so bad? Because adultery is breaking a covenant relationship that God created. So Jesus said what God has brought together. So he says when you vow to your spouse to be, to, uh, you say to them something like this, 
forsaking all others and keeping myself only for you. You may have not said that in those exact words in your vows, but those are the traditional vows. Um, you're, you are making a vow that God is holding you to. And so he makes that union happen, what God has joined together. So it's, it's not just a human thing. It's, it's, it's God at work, and you're uh, going against God's design. So the shock and heartbreak of adultery is understandable because you, as you have, um, before your spouse, you've made yourself vulnerable to them. You've, you've violated and their trust, and inevitably, you covered it with loads of deception. So it's, it's, that's why it's so, so heartbreaking, so devastating. So this commandment applies to all sexual sin. So God, because it's the centerpiece of a violation of marriage, God says anything other than that, uh, anything other than marriage, sexuality within marriage is, is sinful. So the seventh commandment is a standard that God uh, later on uh, describes other, other ways that you break this by not honoring sex within male-female marriage. The common thinking today is that in times past, people were sexually repressed, and they didn't know that you could be free and do whatever you want to do, and now we're more enlightened, so we, we now, now we know we can do whatever we want, and no, it's not uh, God's design. Now, someone might, someone might be thinking, is, is sex outside of marriage really such a big deal? I mean, come on, really? I mean, I can kind of get adultery because you made a promise, you made a vow, but, but is other things, other ways, other sexuality outside of that, is that really that serious? Well, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8, he writes these words to a brand new, Christ, brand new Christians. They've been living in a sexually promiscuous society, culture just like ours. And so he says to them, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So, what is God's will for my life? Well, one thing is you abstain from sexual immorality. And the word is porneia, so you hear where we get the word porn. In the Greek, it's porneia. That each one of you know how to control his own body. Hey, whoever thought about that, controlling your own body, that's new. How to control your own body in holiness and honor. So he, you see the word holiness come up a lot in this text. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So not only does the seventh commandment mean that we, that we shouldn't sin sexually, but it also means we should not lead others to but by what we do by, by intimidation, by forcing, by writing articles, by teaching, uh, by movies, making it seem okay. So if we do this, we're disregarding not man's rules, but God. And God's will is that we be holy in our sexuality. Now, what about singles who want to be married but just can't find the right person? How do they manage well, the point of this question is, is often, does God really expect singles to remain celibate until they're married? I mean, come on, really? Is that possible in this day and age? And the answer is, of course, he does expect that. It is not impossible. 
in our sex-crazed culture, expecting that someone should abstain from sex when they have a desire for it is seen as almost as, un as unreasonable as denying food. But people can and do live uh, without sex. They can't live without food. No one has ever died from lack of sex. Do you think that's true? Is being married always better than being single? Well, sex is a good gift of God, but it's not necessary to have it to be fully human. Jesus never had sex, and he was the perfect human, more fully alive than any man that ever walked the face of the earth. The Apostle Paul extolled uh, singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I don't have any of these verses up on the screen, but, but just to refer you to that, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you can see how Paul talks about the value of singleness in marriage. And he said, being married is good, but being single can let you have undistracted devotion to the Lord. If you're married, you, you are rightly concerned to, uh, to care about your spouse. You, you're, you're not, it's not good to not care about your spouse if you're married, so you must do that, and that's a good thing. But uh, if you're single, then if you're unmarried, you can be more concerned about how to please the Lord. So you never have to settle for singleness. If your heart is God's first, if God is first in your heart, despite what you might feel and despite what society might say, you, you never need to just settle for being single because singleness is never second best. Marriage is very good, but singleness may be better depending on what, where you're at in your life and what God's doing in your life. If your view of God is big enough to believe that, could possibly, could possibly be true, do you trust him enough to learn to love your singleness even while you want to be, want to be married? So Paul says, he, he extols marriage throughout his letters. He says a lot about how husbands love their wives and wives love their husbands and as they raise children. And he says, he, so he's not anti-marriage, but he's saying in the present situation, uh, you may be better off to remain single. So that's, it's not a, a subpar option. He's, and, and what he's doing, he's correcting a common misconception that the fullest Christian life happens only in marriage. And actually, the fullest Christian life happens in Christ, not whether you're married or not. Singleness allows us to focus and invest ourselves in Christ and, and his mission in some ways that marriage does not. If we thought and felt about singleness the way God thinks and feels about singleness, none of us would ever settle for singleness. We might long to be married and pray for God to bring us a spouse and pursue a godly person that God puts on our path, but we also can prize every, every minute and hour of our singleness that God gives us. So don't waste your singleness if you're single. Now, Paul says if you're often experiencing sexual temptation, you should get married. This might be some of your favorite verses. Better to marry than to burn with passion. But if that realistically may not happen for a while, you need, God will give you the grace you need to be obedient in this area. You do need strategies to avoid 
temptation, you need to know yourself and know where your weaknesses are. And you need good Christian fellowship. Serve the Lord. We as the church must be a family for singles. Really. Singles shouldn't be just fellowshipping with singles. They should be in mixed groups and with families. And we don't do this out of pity, but because we value them, we see them as part of the body of Christ. Now, <clears throat> since we're on a roll, what about same-sex relationships? And what about same-sex marriage? That's a great question. Well, it's time to close. <laughs> Prayer. If you are a same-sex attracted person, we're glad you're here. You may be same-sex attracted person who uh, believes that this is who you are and that this is, um, you were born this way and God made you this way. That may be where you're coming from. You may have been offended by the way some Christians have spoken about your orientation with disrespect, even hatred, condemnation, and mocking. And if that's the case, um, we're not reflecting the character of Jesus. Now, I've got to say what the scriptures teach, and that is that same-sex sexual relations are not God's design for sexuality. I have to say that because that's what God says. But I believe you are made in God's image and to be respected, even though we disagree. And I hope you'll be patient to listen. An increasing number of professing Christians who once believed that scriptures plainly teach same-sex sexual relations are not God's design for sex are embracing same-sex marriage. Why? Why? Uh, how do they justify that? Well, often it goes like this. They, they get to know a, a same-sex attracted person or people who are nice, helpful, good neighbors who may even have a credible profession of faith in Christ, it seems. Or they have a son or a daughter or other relative comes out as gay. And when that happens, many people sooner or later don't maintain their belief that homosexuality is, is sinful. So the issue isn't whether you love your son or daughter. I mean, of course you do. You always will. But the issue is, does that make it right for them to embrace this as their identity? And with, when, once you uh, take that, that view that, well, it's okay, it's, it's acceptable, then it seems cruel and hateful to deny same-sex attracted people sexual fulfillment. So people who um, have changed their views on that, um, that homosexuality is sinful, it doesn't seem valid or, or plausible anymore, so they change their minds about it. There are six Bible texts that deal with homosexuality. They're each clear that same-sex sexual relations are not God's design for sexuality. They're very clear on that. So we're going to look at one text, just one. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So it's very clear that um, along with other areas of sinfulness, uh, same-sex activity is something that you need to be saved from, not something that you uh, accept and live into. And you can come out of it. You can be saved from it. So how do professing Christians reconcile their, when they accept homosexuality as normal and good, how do they justify that in light of the clear teaching of Scripture? Well, some just say that the Bible got it wrong. They just say, well, they were victims of their cultural um, misunderstanding. They, 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 were, they lived in the times that they did. They didn't really understand. And so they, they just taught what was wrong. Others say that what biblical authors were opposing were promiscuous or perverse forms of same-sex sexual behaviors. They weren't talking about same-sex committed relationships. And there's other ways that they tried to, but those are the basic ways. And if they no longer believe same-sex sexual behavior is wrong, they say, how can we deny marriage to two people who love each other and want to be in a committed relationship? And the answer is, it's not God's design for marriage and sexuality. So how can Christians who are same-sex attracted be obedient to God in their sexuality? If you're a Christian and you, you struggle with that, how, how can you be obedient in that? Well, since the Bible teaches that it's not God's design, what option is there for you? How can you be obedient to Jesus? Well, you say, if, if they're Christians, won't God change their desires, if, if not all at once, gradually, so that they will be opposite sex attracted? And sometimes God does that through the teaching of the Word and, and help of Christ's people. A former radical lesbian, Rosaria Butterfield, um, came to Christ. After some years, she said her conversion was a train wreck. And she said that, um, well, she, she, she married a, a pastor who's male, and she um, is a homeschooling mom, and she speaks and writes to help same-sex attracted people know the truth about their orientation. And there are, so there are good testimonies about those who have changed in that regard, but, but it doesn't happen for everyone. So God doesn't always change their desires entirely in this life, just as he doesn't always change the, the desires of, of Christians with different uh, sin struggles that are not same-sex sexuality. And you know this, you've Everybody here, I, I'm assuming you've got at least one area of sin that you struggle with, and you've been struggling with it for years, maybe months, and it doesn't seem to change. And so you have to keep fighting it. So that's, it's not just true for same-sex attracted people. It's true for all of us. We, we all have areas that we struggle with. And so what we're to do is to deny. We deny ex- God gives us the desire to not express it, to fight it, to act, not act out on it, and to resist giving into it, and to put on holy desires, even if we have to do that the rest of our lives, and it's, it's a continual battle, a continual fight. Ed Shaw, in his book, Same-Sex Attraction and the Church, Surprising Plausibility of the Celibate Life, writes, what sounds totally implausible today is asking same-sex attracted people to turn their backs on those same-sex sexual relationships 
and to embrace lifelong singleness. To say to them, just say no, doesn't have any traction, any real credibility. It embarrasses many of us to even ask them to do it. It sounds positively unhealthy. It lacks any traction in today's world, simply producing astonishment that we would even say that. Now, Ed Shaw is an Anglican pastor. He's, he continues to be same-sex attracted, and he, um, but he doesn't act on it, and he teaches others to, to, not, to be celibate. So he's living what he's, he, his desires are still, he's still trying to orient his desires, but they don't go away, and so he teaches others who are same-sex attracted to, to not uh, act out on their desires. So what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.11 is, such were some of you. So sometimes the desires change, sometimes they don't fully change in this life, but, but you, 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 you identi- your identity is in Christ, your identity is not same-sex attracted, just as your identity is not other sins as well. You're not, if you're in Christ, you're, you're no longer what you were. Your identity is in Christ. So is it realistic for such people to, to remain celibate? Well, just as for single hetero- heterosexual Christians must not act out on their uh, sexual desire. So true for same-sex attracted Christians. This is where same-sex attracted Christians need close relationships in the body of Christ as their, as their family to support and encourage them in living out their identity in Christ. In that sense, they are no different than others. We all have areas we struggle with, we've, we've said. We need the body of Christ. We need to bear one another's burdens, sharing our struggles with each other, praying for and encouraging one another. Jesus called anyone, he said, if anyone wants to come after me to deny himself, Take up his cross and follow him. Taking up your cross means suffering for obedience to the gospel. You may feel like you're losing your life to deny yourself, but Jesus said you're saving your life because you are valuing the only true sin forgiver and sin killer and savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it's not that you just don't care if you, to deal with the desires in your heart. It's like Jesus says in Matthew fifteen nineteen. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So sin comes from our hearts. We're all accountable for allowing sinful thoughts and desires to remain in our hearts. We may not be able to prevent the first entry of a sinful thought, but we are responsible to fight them by the Spirit and replace them with with what God says in his word. It's like Martin Luther said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, whether you're looking at a live woman or a live man, if, you're, if you are a woman, or porn, has com- already committed adultery with her in his heart. All of us have sinned sexually and fall short of, of the glory of God. All of us are sexual sinners. We're, none of us are pure. Some of us had, um, before coming to Christ, not lived pure lives. But in Christ, he redeems us. He rescues us from our lack of purity. And living in a culture that's so washed in sexual sin, he rescues us. 
The good news is we have a bridegroom, a husband, who has loved us with purifying love. We see this in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Maybe you've been unfaithful, maybe sexually and in some other way you've acted out, Maybe you've been involved with porn, maybe whatever. You can be cleansed and washed through the blood of Jesus Christ by putting your faith and trust in him. He kept him, his body pure so that he could redeem us who are impure. We take the communion elements that represent his body and blood because it's only through the blood of Christ and only through the body of Christ that he rescued us and put to death our sin and paid the penalty for all of our sin, sexual or otherwise. So... Prepare, let's prepare our hearts for that. Um, we're going to have Matt Eldridge come up and share uh, how, further how you can seek the Lord for that this morning.